alcoholic. It is an honor and a privilege to be able to do anything for Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I have the privilege of introducing the Saturday night speaker for the state convention here in Mississippi. And um, I got to know Pat through uh, a dark period for, for the world, uh, but some good that came out of it during the pandemic. And one of the things that really um, attracted me to, to Pat's message was uh, it was a message of depth and weight, you know, like Victor last night, uh, Mary and Miss Rosie. Um, it uh, had some teeth to it. And, and there's a reading um, that Bill Wilson wrote back in the 50s or, or a long time ago that really uh, resonated with me and made me think about the kind of message of Alcoholics Anonymous that these guys are, are giving us throughout this weekend. So just uh, bear with me for a second. Um, Bill writes, our chief responsibility to the newcomer is an adequate presentation of the program. Sobriety, freedom from alcohol through the teaching and practice of the 12 steps is the sole purpose of an AA group. And I know Pat's going to bring it down tonight. So come on, Pat. Recovered alcoholic, my name is Pat Rogan. <laughs> and thanks to the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous outlined in our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the program of AA, I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and for that I will be forever grateful. Uh, AA didn't just save my life, but it gave me a new life, and uh, absolutely a new life, life worth living. Did I say wife? <laughs> and a new wife worth living for. <laughs> <laughs> There is a lot of truth in that. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor, honor to be here. Thank you for the committee and Lori and for, uh, Josh for asking. Uh, it's uh, a real privilege. I want to especially thank Eric and Bridget for uh, making us feel at home here. Uh, I was obviously a little worried when we got to the airport who we were going to ride for two hours with on the way over here. And uh, it, was, it was great to meet you. You're just uh, one of us. You know, one of us, and uh, we feel at home here, so I want to thank you. It's funny, I, I, I uh, identified with a part of everybody that spoke up to this point. I get, you know, this, this common problem, this common suffering that we share, you know, that binds us. And, uh, and especially when, when Victor spoke last night, I, uh, I was that guy, too. I was that guy that came into uh, AA, and... Uh, and, and uh, and I was, if you asked me how I was doing, I was hanging in there. You know what I mean? I was that guy that suffered for my first three months in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I did not get better when I came into AA. And, and the only reason I was in AA is because alcohol stopped working. You know, I want to be honest with you. If alcohol still did for me what it did uh, 20 years ago, 20 years before I stopped, I would still be doing it. You know, uh, it just stopped working. I had given up uh, everything that I loved and everybody that had loved me uh, for the drink. And, uh, and I found myself in the end drinking to get up to pass out, to drink to get up to pass out. And uh, there was just no relief in it. And, and I ended up in these rooms of AA. And uh, if alcohol still worked, I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't have, you'd have a different speaker. That's just a fact. I was willing to trade everything for what alcohol did for me, for the relief that I got in the bottle. And, uh, and I pretty much did before I got here. But uh, I fell in with the uh, don't drink and go to Denny's. Do they have a Denny's here? Yeah. That was our motto, don't drink and go to Denny's, you know. Uh, and that, look, don't drink and go to meetings is a great suggestion, but tell them the rest of the story. You know, don't drink, go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps. 
and recover. Uh, people who don't just don't drink and go to meetings get drunk. That's what that's what they do, you know. And that's uh, that's my experience. And uh, look, if I could just not drink and go to meetings, <coughs> you'd have a different speaker, you know. If I could just say no, you know, Nancy Reagan, right? Uh, I would have just said no. I would have heard your stories and said, okay, I get it. Don't pick up the first drink. I'm out of here. And uh, the fact is that I needed more than just don't drink and go to meetings. You know, now I'm grateful that the fellowship wrapped their arms around me and dragged me to Denny's every freaking night. You know, I mean, that became my life when I got here. I would, I would go to the 5.30 meeting, the 7, the 8.30, the 10, clean up and then go to Denny's. And, uh, and you guys would bloat me with grand slams and French slams and ice cream sundaes and then send me home. And I guess they'd figure I was too full to pick up a drink. Uh, but, and, uh, and the truth is I really had nowhere to go anyway. I had lost everything and I was living in the back room of my mother's house at 36 years old. I did not feel and, better. Uh, I did not feel better when I got here. I, Charlie Parmalee, who's one of my mentors, who a lot of you probably know of, uh, did the big book seminars, him and Joe. And uh, Charlie used to say, you'll feel better when you get here. You'll feel anger better. You'll feel resentment better. You'll feel fear better. And, uh, and that's who I was. I was a five-year-old again. You know, I was the kid that couldn't stand the way he felt at a very young age. I was the, I was the pre-alcohol kid again when I got to alcohol. You took my medicine away. I, you took the glue that was holding me together away. You know, alcohol was the glue that kept me together for 20 years, and, uh, and now it's gone, and now what? You know, and I, and I can't think about recovery because all I'm thinking about is everything that I'm losing. You know, I, I, you know, you guys are talking to me, and I hear Charlie Brown's teacher, but in my head I hear, you need to get that house back. You need to get your kids back. You need to get the wife back. You know, and, and that's all that's going over my head. And I'm, I'm just trying to figure out a way to get all my stuff back because my life is falling apart. You know, and what I didn't know is that it was falling into place, you know, and, uh, and I just had no idea what was in front of me. And, you know, I, I uh, somebody mentioned it, one of the speakers mentioned it, I drank because I liked the effect, and Rosie mentioned I drank, I liked the effect produced by alcohol. That's why I drank. I loved the effect produced by alcohol. I hated sober. That's, we were talking about Sandy B, and, and Sandy used to say, you know what happens when you stop drinking? You're freaking sober. You know, that sucks, you know, and, and that's where I was. I, I'm, I'm, I can't stand the way I feel, sober. And I'm, like I said, the five-year-old again. I'm the kid who's scared to death to walk into the school. You know, I got caught skipping school at five, you know. I mean, I didn't even know what skipping school was, you know. I thought I was hiding behind the school, you know, and uh, the police would pick me up and take me home, and I was just scared. I was just afraid to walk into the school. I was the kid who had his homework done, but if you ask me to get up in front of the class to read it, I'll take the F, you know, just move along. I'm not getting up there, you know. I'm the kid that looked in the mirror and I, I can't stand the way I feel. I can't stand the way I look. Why do I have to look like this? Why do I have to be so short? Why do I have to be so skinny? Why do my ears stick out? Why do I have these freaking freckles on my face, you know? Why can't I be him, you know? And I think there's a, that's a kind of a common denominator in Alcoholics Anonymous, this inner dialogue that tells us we're not good enough, that we're not worth it, that we're not normal, that we're not normal. Because we've got billboards out there that tell us what normal looks like. You know, we've got people that tell us what we should look like to be normal and how we should act to be normal. And I was none of that. I was none of that. And, uh, you know, I was, uh, and by the way, I don't know where that comes from. I don't know where a five-year-old uh, is scared to death to walk into a school. I have no idea. I don't know whether I was just wired that way from birth. 
or uh, or if my family life had something to do with that. I don't know. You know, my, my dad, uh, my my I lived in a violent house. My dad was a violent drunk, and you never knew who was going to show up at that house when he walked in that door. Uh, you know, he, when he walked in, my mother might ask something stupid like, where were you? <laughs> and, uh, and all hell would break loose. I mean, I, I have pictures in my head and my mind of my father sitting on my mother's chest while three of us were sitting around watching TV while he beat the crap out of my mother. It's not why I'm an alcoholic. I think it's why I needed a drink. But it's not why I'm an alcoholic. Uh, there were four of us, uh, three out of the four of us are addicts or alcoholics. It skipped my brother. My brother, uh, my sister's two years younger than me. She has two years less sober than I do. My brother, it skipped. And then my baby sister died uh, of an overdose uh, 14 years ago, you know, somewhere in there, 14, 15 years ago. And, uh, but my brother grew up in the same house, same family. And when my brother thinks about his childhood, he gets a little depressed. He has a couple drinks, and he goes and watches TV or goes to bed, you know. I think about my childhood, I get a little depressed, I have a couple drinks, and I go to town, <laughs> you know, and uh, on a run, you know, and it's just two different reactions. What makes me an alcoholic is I can't stay stopped when I'm given a good reason, and I can't control it once I start. He's just not that guy, you know. But, uh, you know, I, I, uh, in my teen years, I was scared to death. I, I wasn't going to the dances. I didn't do the proms or the homecomings. Or scared to death to ask a girl out because if she says no, I'm gonna have to kill myself. And uh, I just—and uh, that's a tough place to live when you're a teenager. Then all you can think about is girls, and you can't talk to them. You know, that's a problem. And uh, my, my dad left when I was about five, and he would bounce in and he would come. <laughs> he would disrupt our lives now and then, and then leave again. And then my mother married another violent drunk. Uh, and stuff started to go south at that point because he's not my father and he's not going to tell me what to do. And him and I are starting to get physical. And, uh, and I know I need to get out of that house. And uh, I knew I needed a driver's license to get out of that house. And at 14 years old, I bought a car. At 16, I drove from Pittsburgh to Harrisburg, PA, with the capital of Pennsylvania, to get my learner's permit with no driver's license and no plate on the car. Right? I mean, like, rules didn't apply even then, you know. And uh, and I uh, got my learner's permit, passed my driver's test, and my uh, my cousin Russell found out that I had a driver's license, and uh, that makes you valuable if you have a driver's license in a car in the early 70s. And uh, if you had a beer tap, you were really popular <laughs> back then. If you this is a little older crowd, you guys know what that is. You know, down our way, it was you, they're about half the age, and nobody has beer tap. What the hell is a beer tap? You know. And uh, Russell said, uh, we're going to a dance tonight. How about pick us up and take us to the dance? I said, I don't, I don't do the dance thing. It's just not my thing. And uh, he said, no, you don't have to dance. He said, there's going to be a rock band there. You can listen to the band. And I was a big rock guy. And I said, okay. So I pick him up and my, my buddy Rat. Everybody's got a friend named Rat, right? <laughs> Rat was a 16-year-old Italian that looked 30. You know what I mean? Like, Rat had hair coming out of his chest. You know, Rat, I think Rat was going bald at 16, you know? And uh, in Pennsylvania, if anybody's from there, it's uh, 21, right? You had to be 21 to, uh, to buy liquor. Uh, and they had state stores and beer distributors. It, when I came, when I went, I moved to Florida in 1980. And when I moved to Florida and I saw booze in a 7-Eleven, I couldn't believe it. Like, you could actually touch the bottles and fondle them, and you know, <laughs> it was incredible. Up there, you had to point, you know. And uh, Rat went into the state store, 
and bottle a bottle of Boone's Farm and a bottle uh, a bottle of Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill and, and a bottle of orange vodka. And uh, halfway through that bottle of Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill, I had a spiritual experience. <laughs> and I knew a new freedom and a new happiness, man. I, man, I knew how my experience could benefit others, you know. I intuitively knew how to handle situations that used to baffle me, you know. All of that, you're not good enough, you're not big enough, you're not smart enough, you're not good looking enough. Uh, all, that, uh, all that anxiety, all that fear disappeared. And I went from Pee Wee Herman to John Travolta, you know. <laughs> and I was in that dance, staying alive. I was, you know, I was, I was posing, man. I had my, my platform shoes on and my bell-bottom pants and my paisley shirt. And, man, I was cooking, man. I was... I was Saturday Night Fever all over that place, man. And uh, I danced with every girl in the dance. Everyone, whether they wanted to or not. (laughs) You know that guy, ladies, the guy that keeps coming around in front of you. Like, you're dancing with your girlfriends, but this guy keeps coming around. That was me. Slow danced with a girl. First time ever touching a girl. That was an incredible, incredible night. Uh, And... uh, and I was never going to be that scared little kid again. I was never, ever going back to the way I felt. No. Uh, my alcoholism was a little deeper than just that uh, because I went on a 20-year run. That's the short version. <laughs> I mean, I was an alcoholic. Somebody mentioned it about the, the, the line. I think Rosie mentioned it about the line. You know, there was, there was no line for me. You know, my, the line I crossed was my lips. You know, uh, I, uh, I'm an alcoholic. All you needed to do was add alcohol. Uh, my family tree... Uh, dictates that. Uh, I come from a long line of Irish drunks. Uh, my family tree has bottles hanging off it. I mean, it's uh, both my grandfathers are dead from this illness on both sides of the family. My grandmother on the Irish side died from alcoholism. My dad had uh, three brothers and two sisters. He has one sister alive today and him. And uh, he drinks a half a fifth of vodka to go to sleep every night. Uh, I don't know. He says it's potato vodka. I think he thinks it's a vegetable, you know. But, uh, and then the three out of the four of us caught the bullet. And uh, we, I really believe I caught the genetic bullet. And I mean, it doesn't matter how you got it. Once you got it, you got it. You ain't getting rid of it, you know. And we, can, we know that we can drink ourselves into it. And we know that as we get older, the body just doesn't process it like it used to. And we end up alcoholics. And, uh, but I've, at any rate... Uh, I, uh, I my drug the effect produced by alcohol. Alcohol was my go-to. Alcohol was good enough. But if you had something else, <laughs> I didn't even ask what it was. Mm-hmm. He said, you want some of these? Of course I do. <laughs> you know, I started asking what direction we were going. I, I thought that would be smart. You know, But uh, are we going up or down? I mean, which way are we going? You know, I need to know. And, uh, and the, the, you know, the unmanageability that I speak to is internal. You know, uh, not consequences. The unmanageability I speak to is the emotions that, that drove my life. Up until that point, how I felt dictated what I was going to do, what I was going to try to do, and whether I succeeded or failed. And, uh, you know, I was, I was a baseball. I, I played high school baseball. You know, I just couldn't. And I, I would make the team. I made the junior high school team. I made the senior team. But you put me under pressure. You put me where there's any kind of pressure, and I just fold. I would just absolute fold. The emotions would just take me out of the game. And, and now that's all fixed. That, that unmanageability is, is, is gone. Uh, 
the consequences, on the other hand, uh, started immediately. I, uh, I went through a windshield three days after that drink. I wrecked three more cars that year. I got arrested three times that year. I uh, lost my driver's license before my 17th birthday for eight years. I got caught four times driving under suspension. And uh, I got my first felony at 19. You know. I love Bill's story, ominous warnings, <laughs> which I failed to heed, you know, and, and even my friends, as in Bill's story, my friends are backing away, like, dude, we're, we're not going to jail with you tonight, you know, we're going to another bar, and I say, yeah, great, no, we're, we're going to another bar, <laughs> you're staying right the hell here, you know, and, uh, and I started just doing my own thing, you know, and I uh, had a son in 1978, and got married in 1979, and in, uh, 1980, I moved to South Florida. If anybody knows what was going on in South Florida in 1980, uh, I got caught up in a snowstorm, man. And, uh, and I found a way to really enhance my drinking. Uh, matter of fact, I found a way to drink around the clock and still make it to work. Uh, it was an amazing gift. Uh, I was spending $300 a day to go to work to make 80. <laughs> But they were delivering this new form of alcohol right to the job sites. It was, a, it was an incredible thing. Uh, and uh, I became an absentee husband, an absentee father. I was just never around. I was just always on a run, always on a run. I was working or, or getting high, one or the other. And, uh, and I became an absentee husband. And, and I don't know how my marriage lasted until 1989, but by 1989, my wife wanted out. She wanted out of the marriage. And, uh, and she was willing to do anything to get out of it. And, You know, this, this part of my story never gets easy because to look back and to see who I was at that point in my life, the, that the book describes, uh, and it was said, you know, this, this selfish, self-centered piece of crap, you know, that I was. And, uh, and my mindset was if you're leaving, you're leaving with nothing. You know, you're going to leave with nothing. And, and she was so desperate, she was willing to leave with nothing. You know, I got the house, I got the car, I got custody of my son, and uh, and our marriage was over. We ended up divorced, and uh, uh, shortly after that, I was uh, sitting in my bedroom with a bottle of Jose Cuervo eighteen hundred and my son playing in the other room, and I think Bill labeled it that bitter morass of self pity, you know, and. Uh, and I hate to even say this, but this was my mindset, is that that bitch is out there having a good time and I'm stuck here with this kid. That's where my mindset, that's who I was. And without any thought of the effect that it might have on my son, uh, I tried to take my ass out uh, in that bedroom. It was probably uh, the first emotional bottom that I ever hit. And, uh, and I really thought that uh, I was a drug addict that drank. You know, I mean, that was my mindset. That's, that's, that's what I thought, you know. I mean, at least that's what I convinced myself, and actually that's what I convinced her to get her to come back, that, I'm, that I was so sorry, that I'll never touch another drug the rest of my life, and I didn't. I was two years clean when I ended up here. And, uh, and I put the Coke down, and that was the end of that, and, uh, and I'm only going to drink on weekends. <laughs> That shit didn't last long. <laughs> oh. I knew, who was it that swore? I knew I'd make up. Made it till Wednesday, I think. <laughs> you know, and uh, man, it took me, uh, it took me down. Uh, 
I couldn't stay sober. Uh, and uh, it took two years to hit a bottom. I, I don't, I had, an, we had another son immediately. Once we got, you know, got back together, we had another son. So I had a 10 year old and, uh, and a newborn and uh, I couldn't stay stopped uh, as much as I wanted to. At least I thought, you know, I, I don't know what I wanted, you know. I, you know, I would promise that I wasn't going to drink, but then I needed to drink, you know. And then I would make up like, well, nobody tells me what to do, you know. I'm a grown man. I mean, who are you to tell me that I can't drink, you know. And just uh, on and on and on. And I came home from uh, Brady's Pub about 2.30 in the morning one night, and uh, I have no idea what uh, my ex-wife said. And uh, I knocked her down in front of my two kids. And uh, my oldest was 12 and my youngest was two. And I became exactly what I hated my father for. You know, I hated my father for putting that picture in my mind. And, and I did the same thing to my two boys. And uh, once again, you know, beginning of the beginning or the beginning of the end, it depends on your perception, you know. But uh, I was arrested charged and uh, restraining order and she got the house and she got the car and she got the kids and uh, and I ended up in a hotel room in Fort Lauderdale a days in I can tell you almost the address you know it was like 441 in Commercial Boulevard southeast corner uh, for three weeks trying to trying to find some relief in the bottle and I just couldn't find it you know my, my former sponsor, God rest his soul, used to say that alcohol would give me permission to violate yours and my principles. And then it would give me absolution later. And, and that's the way I had been living my life, is give me permission and then give me absolution. And, uh, and anything, was, uh, anything was open. There was no, no principles that I was unwilling to violate. You know? and, uh, and I can't get relief. And like I said, I'm getting up to pass out, to get up to pass out. And... Uh, and there's this moment that takes place, you know, these, these moments that, in, you know, when they happen, we have no idea where they came from. Like in hindsight, and looking in the rearview mirror, we say, okay, maybe that was God, <laughs> you know. But there was this moment that said, you need help, call your sister. And I had never thought that before. Nobody ever said I should call my sister. Nobody ever said, your sister's in AA, you should call her. Nobody ever said, you have a drinking problem, you should go to AA. I never thought about going to AA until that moment. And I called my sister and I asked my sister for help. And she came and picked me up and took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in uh, March uh, 26, 1991. Uh, I don't remember much about the meeting. I know it was at the Fifth Chapter Club. I know the address, you know. And, uh, and there was a guy that looked just like Papa Smurf at the end of the meeting. And Papa Smurf asked if anybody wanted to start a new way of life. And, uh, and I don't know if he asked that question in any other way if I get up. I was not ready to surrender. I needed to get my shit back. You know, I was not ready to give up a fight. I got a lot to get. But I wasn't a new way of life. I wanted a new way of life. I could not continue to live the way I was living. And I jumped up out of my chair and picked up a white chip. It's the only white chip I ever picked up. Uh, I'm a one white chipper. And, uh, and my journey in recovery started, you know, and my hanging in there began. <laughs> and if you ask me how I was doing, I was hanging in there. You know, I had that wrinkled forehead look. You know those guys that are hanging in there with the wrinkled forehead. You know, I got another, almost got another 24, you know. 
<laughs> and I was uh, called my sponsor four times today. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> Two more hours, I'll get another 24, and we'll start this shit over tomorrow. You know? But I, uh, I was Dr. Bobbed. If anybody knows what that is, Dr. Bob, I was second stepped uh, when I came into the program. I was uh, there was a guy named Camper John, who the Fifth Chapter Club was a cool place. It had a meeting room and then it had like a club room, you know. So if you don't want to hear the crap in the meeting room, you could go into the club room and drink coffee or play checkers or chess or twelve step work, <laughs> which was not in my vocabulary back then. But uh, and Camper John was the bartender at the coffee bar, uh, behind Denny's, by the way. And, uh, and Camper John looked at me, I was probably three or four days, if you want to call it sober. Uh, and Camper John looked at me and said, man, you don't look good. And I said, no, I don't feel too good, John. And he said, yeah, I don't, I don't think you're going to make it today. And, and I started to walk away. I said, well, thanks for the confidence. You know? And he says, no, 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 come here. He says, look, what you need to do is you need to get up in the morning and ask God to keep you sober. And then at night, you need to thank him for keeping you sober. And I said, okay, John, thanks. And I started to walk away. And he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't think you're going to make it through a day. And he said, you need to ask him to get you through the hour. And then the next hour. And then the next hour. And then to lunch. And then to one. And then to two. And, okay, John. And, and I, I, had a, I didn't know what else to do, so I started doing it. You know, I just started praying for God to get me through the next hour. And it was, I, don't, I can't tell you if I was a believer or not. I, you know. I'm probably that agnostic that walked in here that was afraid to not believe, <laughs> just in case, you know. And uh, and but yet I wasn't willing to say that there was this deity that was controlling everything, you know. But I was blindly just doing what John suggested, and I started putting some days together, you know. And I started to believe John had something, you know. And and that's kind of how this works, right? We take this blind leap of faith and do what they tell us to do in these rooms, and then we get results, and then we go, okay, that, that might work. And, and so I started doing what he said and praying to get the lunch and to get the dinner. Matter of fact, I got like a week or two together, and I thought, maybe there's something to this God thing. And I was working in South Miami, and there's this jewelry store next door. And I go next door, and I said, I need a cross, you know. And, and he said, you want a crucifix? I said, I'm not going that far, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know. So just give me the cross, you know, and uh, and I don't even know why I did that. You know, it was just like I need more. I, I this might work. Let me try it. You know, and and it, at least what it was doing was reminding me to pray. You know, when I would look in the mirror in the morning, I would have this cross on it. it would remind me, ask God to get you to work. You know, and uh, and I, I tell you, I, I was supposed to have it. I mean, I've lost it three times, and and I mean, lost it in my yard. I lost it at a customer's house. It just keeps showing up. You know, and. and uh, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for Dr. Bob either. Dr. Bob was in the Oxford Group for two and a half years. Dr. Bob was a believer. And he still couldn't stay stopped. He needed some more information. I needed more information. I needed more than don't drink, go to Denny's and pray. Because I'm picking up a red chip at the Fifth Chapter Club at the 10 p.m. meeting. And I can't stand the way I feel anymore. I can't do this anymore. I'm at that jumping off point that you talk about in the, in the big book. I'm in a turning point here. You know, I'm at a point where it talks about I can't live with alcohol or without alcohol. Now what? Right? Now what? I can't stand the way I feel for one more freaking second and I can't drink. What's the difference between that and where I was in the hotel room? 
I can't stand the way I feel for one more freaking second and I can't stop drinking. It's the same place. Only ones without alcohol. And I told all of you off at the 10 p.m. meeting. Picking up my, I picked up my red chip and as a thank you, I told you what a bunch of losers you are. You know, that this is some kind of cult. You know, that this does not work. You know, I'm ready to kill myself here. You know, and if somebody hugs me one more time, I'm punching them. You know. <laughs> You know, I'm not ready to share, you know. And there was this guy, I actually pointed to this guy, this guy. There was a guy there, and it drove me crazy, and I know you guys have heard this guy. This guy who said he had a life beyond his wildest dreams, and he's in AA. I said, dude, this is not where you want to be. You know, you don't even have a car or a girlfriend. What are you talking about, a life beyond your wildest dreams? I had no idea. And he had a life beyond his mind. I know, I mean, he looked like he did. He was talking about something totally, that I, I was totally unaware of. He was talking about the inside. I'm talking about the outside being a life of my own. I need to get, if I get this, if I get that and this and her and it, I'll be happy. He's not talking about that. He's happy in spite of all that other stuff. I had no idea that even existed. I had no idea what he was talking about. Like beyond my wildest dreams. I did not put this on. This is what I want to be when I grow up. You know, I want to be an AA and go to Denny's every freaking night. You know, <laughs> I meant, I wanted to ask them at Denny's, like, what do you do for fun? Like, is this it? And I think they were afraid to tell me yes. You know, <laughs> this is it. We go, we go ice cream. On By the Thursday. way, I love going to eat with you guys. <laughs> you know, what I mean, that's what we do, right? We go, we eat, we tell these tragically funny stories. You know. That if people be on the other table for their, these normies would hear these stories, they'd be go, oh my God, you know. <laughs> we talk about going through windshields and, you know, <laughs> hospital for four weeks. And, you know. I left that meeting and I was standing at the railing. The Fifth Chapter Club was on the second floor. And I was standing at the railing and uh, Brian H. approached me and uh, Brian said, uh, he might have said it's not high enough, but uh, Brian was kind of an outcast also. Brian had just been to a Joe and Charlie Big Book seminar, and the light had just come on in Brian about the Big Book, and he became a Big Book thumper. And uh, we're not real well liked in a lot of meetings. When uh, All we want to talk about is the, the program. <laughs> you know, and so he was one of them guys that carried the big book and every time he shared he shared something from the big book and people don't like it so he was kind of outcast and now I'm an outcast and, and he says to me you know there's a program here and I said yeah I've been coming for three months he said no you've been visiting the fellowship he said there's a program here it's called the big book would you like to hear it and I said okay you know what do I got to lose and he took me in his little Mazda behind the fifth chapter club and he read the doctor's opinion to me I don't know where you were hiding that, but uh, there's some pertinent information right there. You know, I think what every alcoholic and addict wants to know, why can't I stay stopped? Why can't I stay stopped? I'm given good reason. You know, our book addresses that over and over. I'm given good reason. Faced with divorce. Faced with the loss of my child. Faced with a career loss. Faced with jail. Why do I still drink? That first felony I got, I, I was first time in population. I was in the Allegheny County Jail in downtown Pittsburgh in my John Travolta outfit, you know. <laughs> and uh, I look like a date. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
and I have never been so scared in my life. I'm, I mean, I was, I was really, I was in tears at the arraignment the next morning. You know, I, I mean, I was 125 pounds. You know, like I don't, I don't look good. And, and, I, and I said, Your Honor, I mean, I can't be here. I, I, you got to let me out. And I, beg, I swore on my mother. I swear on my mother, you will never see me do this again. That's it. I'm done. And uh, and he ROR'd me. You know, and I left that courtroom. You know, I was drunk before I got home. So you guys get that, and that's our bond. You know, you guys get, my psychiatrist did not get that, right? <laughs> he went, what? <laughs> and then once in a while he would say, yeah, I know how you feel. And I go, no, you don't. <laughs> did you ever give up a marriage for booze? And he said, no. I said, did you ever go to jail, drink, knowing you're gonna go to jail? He said, no. Did you ever drink knowing you're gonna lose your son? No, I mean, you don't know how I feel. You guys do, you guys do. Why can't I stay stopped? And why can't I control it like my friends? You know, why can't I stop at some point and go freaking home? Well, Brian read my life story in the doctor's opinion. You know, he talked about an obsession of the mind and the allergy of the body. And I'm going to tell you something. There's not a meeting that I'm at ever that you don't hear me talk about the obsession of the mind and the allergy of the body. If a newcomer is going to hear anything from me at every meeting that I'm in, he's going to hear about the, or she is going to hear about the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. This idea that overcomes all other ideas to the contrary. Bill calls it this black curtain that comes down between me and the truth. This, this, curtain, this, this idea that can only see what alcohol is going to do for me and completely blocks out what it's going to do to me. And then once I fall prey to that drink and get that ease and comfort that comes about, drink three for me, right, three or four, the <sighs> comes, boom, I'm off to the races. And I come out of it. There's my life story. Restless, irritable, and discontent, right? This, this, this anxiety, this fear. I mean, label it whatever you want. This gut-wrenching, I can't stand the way I feel for one more freaking second. And then the ease and comfort that comes in number three or four. And then, boom, off to the race. And I come out of that. I, I'm so sorry. Your, honey, listen, I, I know, I know I probably, never, never again. Your Honor, seriously, I, I, I know I said I was serious last time. You know, this time I really mean it. You know? And I couldn't make it a week. I, I never made it more than three, four, five days. You know, white knuckling, this emotional barometer that just keeps climbing, you know. And I'll tell you, there's one of my favorite paragraphs in More About Alcoholism. It says, what about, what about when we go out and deliberately get drunk, knowing what the consequences are going to be, knowing that we're going to go to jail, knowing that she's going to leave, knowing that our job is in jeopardy. I call it the effort paragraph. And we drink anyway. It wasn't even that I didn't know the truth. I knew the truth. But you know what? I'm going to pay the price tomorrow, but I'm going to feel okay today. Right? I'll, pay, I'll worry about that tomorrow. We talk about living one day at a time is something new. Right? We've been living one day at a time our whole freaking lives. You know, you know you got rent tomorrow. F the rent. <laughs> you know, give everybody a drink. You know? you know you're going to prison. F. That's Friday. This is Tuesday. You know? I'll worry about it tomorrow. I'll, I need relief now. What's it say? This is repeated over and over and over again. Unless we can have some, the doctor doesn't want to say spiritual experience, but some psychic change, some change in the way we think. 
And I love that they just give up too. You know, he says, with all the synthetic knowledge that we have, we just don't have any success with you people. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't happen. That's my, my favorite uh, definition of, a, of, of the spiritual experience. And when Roland, uh, when Carl Jung tells Roland, I thought you were crazy, it's way worse. <laughs> You're an alcoholic. <laughs> no hope for you. Yeah. Well, there's one hope. There's one hope. Unless you can have this spiritual experience, he calls it, this psychic change. This, my favorite definition of a, of, a, of a spiritual experience is in that chapter, and ideas, emotions, and attitudes that were once the guiding forces are replaced by a whole new set of concepts. Right? The way I thought and the way I feel and the way I act is completely opposite of the way I thought, felt, and when I got here. You know? that my, my thoughts and my emotions ran my life, and now I'm, I'm on a different plane. Now there's something else running my life. You know, I was, uh, I was so taken back. I finally knew what was wrong with me. I was so relieved. I mean, how about you? Did you, anybody think they were crazy when they got here? <laughs> like, I thought, who else does that? I mean, who gives up kids and freedom and jobs unless they're crazy? Well, ill people, sick people do that. Alcoholics do that. Addicts do that. That's who does it. And I found out I was sick, not crazy. I was relieved. <laughs> you know, first time in my life. I went, Shit. <laughs> what do we do? Now what? Well... You believe in God? Yep, I've been doing, I've been praying for three months, you know. Let's do three, let's start writing, you know. And I started writing. And I, I got relief as soon as that pen hit the paper. I, I mean, I started to get relief. I mean, I, I got three names down on my fourth step, and I got to that fourth column where my responsibility, and I went, oh, my God, this is all my fault. Oh, my God. You know, the book talks about looking at life from a different angle. You know, all of a sudden we see it differently. I'm not a victim here. I'm a volunteer. I am the perpetrator. I am the perpetrator. The book was accurate. You are selfish. You're self-centered. You're driven by 100 forms of fear, self-delusion, self-pity. Your actions get everybody pissed off, and they react. And it was just true. I mean, I, it's so, doesn't it sometimes, I don't know, who, everybody's probably done a force there. You, some of them just look so stupid once you put them on paper, right? I'm mad at the police because they arrested me. They were called to the scene. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? I had to write, you know, what happened? They were called. It was a 911 call. You assaulted your wife. You're like, yeah, I'm not mad at them anymore. <laughs> you know, I'm mad at the IRS. They took my money. No, they took their money. You know, if you, you pay your taxes, they don't take your money. You know, it's just stupid stuff. You know, just, there was some that were legitimate. There was some really. My father was on there. You know, it was legitimate. And, you know, I didn't play a part in that, but I need to own it. I need to own the resentment. I need to see where that resentment is driving my life, you know, which is taking, I'm letting him steal my life. And I had to own it. But, but I got relief immediately in my fourth step. But I'll tell you where I stumbled. I was scared to death of five. Scared to death of five. I have trust issues, man. I don't, anybody else? <laughs> you know, everybody runs, everybody lies, you know, everybody cheats. You know, that's the family I grew up in. I, my role models were liars, cheats, thieves, drunks. You know, that's, that's who my life was patterned over. My, and look, I, I learned to forgive my father. I get it. You know, the way he was raised, he had no shot either. You know, raised by two drunk parents. You know, he had no shot at relationships. You know. People I should have been able but, to trust uh, unconditionally. I, uh, I didn't trust you. And, uh, and I didn't trust you. I didn't, I didn't know who to do my fifth step with. You know, I had my fourth step done. Brian, who I owe my life to, I did not trust him. 
you know. Hey, we sat at Denny's talking about all you people, you know. Gossip, that's why gossip kills, you know. I'm sitting in there listening to you talk about the people in the meetings. I'm thinking my fifth step's going to be on this table next week, you know. I'm not sharing nothing with you people. Gossip kills. You know, our rule is if they're not here, we don't talk about them. You know, they're not here, we don't talk about them. Let them wait till they're here, then we'll talk about them. And that, that never happens. <laughs> So I got this tough love men's group that I'm part of called the Boca Boys Club. A bunch of old men in Deerfield. I don't know where they got the name. Uh, but uh, they're the guys uh, They're the guys that helped me grow up in AA. I came here, I was a 36-year-old little brat. That's what I was. I was a brat, defiant. These guys, I thought they hated me. They loved me. They were trying to shape me. They were trying to guide me. I mean, these guys were tough love, man. They were... If you try to go off topic in a meeting, they shut you up. You know what I mean? If you want to talk, you, you want to talk about, I want to talk about my ex-wife. No, nah, we're going to talk about it after the meeting, Pat. We'll get with you about the ex-wife. Right now, we're talking about the doctor's opinion. You know, yeah, but I need to share it. No, not now. We'll get with you after the meeting. You know, show up at dinner before the meeting, or we'll get with you after the meeting. And I mean, they shut you mid-chair. You know, God forbid. I'll tell you, you would never pull out a phone in this meeting. They'd stop the meeting. They'd stop the meeting. They'd wait for you. Go ahead, finish your call. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were tough. Yeah. I remember I wanted to chair the meeting. And, I mean, they were, they were to a point where they would tell me what to wear. You know what I mean? Like, I'd show up working all day. I'm a blue-collar guy. I'm filthy, dirty. Come, you come to the meeting like that? I said, yeah, I worked all day. So maybe you should carry another shirt with you or something. You know, that looks like shit. You know what I mean? It's, you know, you're not representing AA very well, you know. Uh, so I volunteered to chair the meeting one month. They said, okay, you can chair. And I said, you know, make sure you wear a collared shirt. And, you know, it was a, that was a rule. You had to wear a collared shirt. If you're going to be at the podium with these guys, you had to wear a collar. I don't show up anywhere to speak or chair a meeting without a collar on because of these guys. So I come the next week, I don't have a collar. Like, bad guy, you can't chair. I said, what do you mean I can't chair? He said, well, you didn't bring a collar. And I said, what's the difference whether I wear a collar or not chairing this meeting? He said, that's the difference. <laughs> you can't chair. <laughs> <laughs> nailed it. You nailed it, Pat. You got it. You know? Gave him the finger and left the meeting. Came next week with a collar on. <laughs> I'm going to chair the meeting. He said, fine, go ahead. You know, but they just weren't, they were just, you know. I, I remember them saying the most important thing in your life, Pat, is... Alcoholics Anonymous. And we go, you guys are crazy. How can you say that? I mean, you know, when we get here, no, my, my children are number one in my life. And then my job has to be, I can't, if I don't have a job, I can't take care of my kids. If I don't have a car, I can't go to work. If I don't have a truck, I can't do my job. What are you talking about? I didn't get it for a while. But you know what? I don't have any of that stuff without Alcoholics Anonymous. None of it. I came in here, I'd lost all that. And here I am telling you that, that, that this isn't the most important thing in my life. That's just who I was. I just defiant. You know? So these guys are on. When are you going to do your fifth step? When are you going to do your fifth step? I said, all right. So I decided to, I was going to do it with a priest. I figured by law, he can't say anything. You know? well, I don't know if it's a law, but I think it's like a priest thing. You know? And I'm not sure if he could stand on the witness stand, but I, I thought by law. And uh, so I call St. Andrew's Church at 11 o'clock at night thinking nobody will pick up the phone, and I'll tell these guys I tried, nobody answered, right? And Father Quinn picked up the phone. And, uh, and I said, I'm an alcoholic, you know, oh, and you want to do a fifth step, you know? 
I didn't know it, but the Coral Springs group had been meeting at his church for years, and, and he knew that if uh, an alcoholic called him what they wanted. And he, My office, tomorrow morning, 9.30. And I was in his office the next morning at 9.30, and I spent two and a half hours with him. And my life forever changed. It forever, ever changed. Uh, I left that office uh, free for the first time in my life. I, I was conflict-free. For that moment, I felt no conflict whatsoever. I have never been at peace like that in my life. I had never felt that before. And I was standing at that courtyard, and all I could see was green. And this will sound weird to some people. And there's only a few people I've heard Marty Mann had the same experience if you, if you read her story. Everything was bright green, fluorescent green. The flowers were fluorescent red and fluorescent yellow. And I just... Eckhart Tolle talks about walking into a room the hundredth time and seeing it for the first time, you know? And I had walked into this courtyard a hundred times before that, and I saw it for the first time, you know? And I was going to work, looking around, and going, these freaking trees are everywhere. <laughs> you know, this is, this is crazy. I, I saw my first sunset that, I'm going home, and there's this gorgeous sunset at, at the end of the day, and I'm going, oh my God, and I can't wait to share it with the girl at the toll booth, you know, at the, at the expressway, you know? And I go to her, and I go, look at that, and she goes, what? And I said, look at that, and she goes, it's a sunset, it's there every night. I, I had never seen it. I had been driving it for 12 years, you know? And I realized I had looking at asphalt and bumpers my whole life. I've been staring at the ground. I never acknowledged anybody that walked by me. I never was interested in anybody around me. If I was at a red light, I was looking at that light to see if it went yellow, because as soon as it goes yellow, this one's going to go green. And you could have passed away in the car beside me, and I would have never noticed it. I just didn't look. For the first time in my life, I'm alive, and I'm looking around, and I'm enjoying Florida. I had been in Florida for 12 years and didn't see the beauty in the state. You know, And it was just incredible, incredible. God entered my heart that day. God entered my life that day. That's our solution, right? The great fact is just this and nothing less that we've had deep and effective spiritual experiences, right? Personality changes, right? Ideas, emotions, and attitudes are replaced. The central fact of my life that day was that God entered my heart and lived in a way which is indeed miraculous and commenced to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. And what I couldn't do for myself is stay stopped. And that day, the obsession was lifted. I haven't had the obsession to drink since that day. I'm not telling you I haven't thought about it. My mind will always know what that effect will be. I, I, look, I stub my toe, I think Vicodin, you know? <laughs> then I second thought is ibuprofen. <laughs> but first thought <laughs> always goes there. <laughs> yeah. But I haven't, I, I knew I was done. I knew I was done. You know, God went from a thought to a feeling. God entered my heart. You know, and that's, that's our program, right? Just be willing to believe. Just take a leap of faith. Just go from no, there's no God to maybe there is. What choice do I have? I'm going to die. Let me give it a shot. You know, that's our choice, right? Two doors. Die an alcoholic death or, or accept spiritual help. Go on to the bitter end or accept spiritual help. And only alcoholics, by the way, would have to consider that, right? <laughs> We'd have to think, let me get back to you. That's a Jack Benny thing, right? Your money or your life. I'll get back to you, you know? But that's us, you know? So what do you got to lose? Go from no to maybe there's a God, you know? And then do the work. Do the work. Do the writing. Do the confessing. Start making restitution. And you will, it will work. I guarantee you it will work. You'll get results, and that's faith. Faith is after the fact. That was new information for me in that big book, that I didn't have to have faith. All I had to do was be willing to believe that you guys were telling me the truth and this could work. 
And I was willing to do that. And in step five, I got proof that this works. Right? And I've been chasing that ever since. I've been chasing it ever since. I want more of that. And to get more of that, I got to work six and seven. And to get more of that, I got to do amends. And to get more of that, I got to live in 10, 11, and 12. I'm constantly want more God. There's this, my, my, uh, my friend Ben T used to say, it's called divine dissatisfaction. There's never going to be enough God. I'm going to be chasing God the rest of my life. I want more. I suffer from the disease of more, and I want more of that. You know? And I can find it any, just about anywhere I go. If I'm looking for it, I find it in all three sides of that triangle. I find it in the steps, I find it in the fellowship, and I find it when I'm working with other people. If I'm not feeling good, I find God here. You, we bring God to this room. We bring a power to this room. I feel it as soon as I walk in. I know you guys do. No matter what's going on out there, when I walk into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's this, it's okay. It's okay. At least for this hour. It's okay. You know, God is present. I feel God when I'm on my knees and I'm praying or anytime I decide to invoke his name during the day. I'm, one of, I'm a big, anybody who knows Brother Lawrence, I'm a big Brother Lawrence fan. I'm a guy who prays all day long. I bring God into everything I do. I need to. Brother Lawrence says, why do we need to lay aside time for prayer? How about we just pray all the time? Yeah. I like prayer and meditation, but I'll tell you, I take God everywhere I go. You know, fear is still the demon. Fear is still there. But I've found a way to walk through it. They think I'm calling to see how they're doing. <laughs> I'm calling to get out of my shit. <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> oh, thanks for calling. Yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> Working with others, that's what we do. And I find relief when they call me. You know, I just I can find God. I find God when I go to my church. You know, as a matter of fact, I find God when I go to any church. You know, I feel the presence of God in those churches. You know. And I'm not promoting religion or anything. I'm just telling you, God is there. God is present. You know, I love going to see Pastor David CBG. I like going to my son's church in Jacksonville at South Point. You know, I, I love our church. Father Kelly's awesome. You know, but I find God there too. I, I can find God anywhere I go. I can find the solution to my problem. It doesn't have to be in a bottle or alcohol in any form today. You know, and I get to do this. <laughs> you know, how cool is that? You know, we get to hear, we get to come to these places and share how broken we are, and everybody claps. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm a god dang mess. Yay! <laughs> it's just an awesome gift, right? It's a, it, it, we just have this amazing bond, and, it's, and as Bill says, it's our common suffering that bonds us together. It's our, it's our common, it's, our, it's our, our shared suffering, you know? My defects become my greatest asset. Because somebody out there is going, yeah, I felt like that. Yeah, that happened to me. Yeah, I did that. What did you do? You know, are you taking on any sponsees? I don't know how many times I hear that. And, and I got to say this, that everybody in this room is uniquely valuable. Uh, ben used to say, we're all diamonds. We're all diamonds. We're all uniquely valuable. Because somebody needs to hear your story, not mine. There's going to be people, younger people here that might not identify with my story, but do identify with somebody who's young up here telling their story. You know? Everybody here has a purpose. Everybody here, story is going to unlock death and misery for somebody else. That's our gift. You know, we get to do something that doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists and the clergy can't do. We save lives here. They can't do it. You know why? Because they don't know how we feel. They don't identify. We do. They really don't know how we feel because they're not one of us. Well, some of them are. 
<laughs> and some of them need our, need our help. <laughs> but how cool is that, that we can do something a doctor can't? You know, that's a gift. We've all been chosen. Every one of us sitting here has been chosen. Whether we answer the call or not, that's another story. But obviously, being at a state convention like you guys, I think you all know that you've been chosen. Right? I want to thank you so much for letting me be here. And thank you for the honor of speaking at your convention. So have a great night. Thanks. <laughs>